Order. Questions to the Prime Minister. Dr. Philippa Whitford. Question number one, Mr. Speaker. The Leader of the House, Mr. David Leader. Mr Speaker, I have been asked to reply. My right honourable friend, the Prime Minister, is visiting the Gulf Cooperation Council Summit in Bahrain. Mr Speaker, this morning I had meetings with ministerial colleagues and others, and in addition to my duties in this House, I shall have further such meetings later today. Dr Philippa Whitford. Yesterday's signing of a Memorandum of Understanding with Houston Spaceport and the Rice Space Institute brings the reality of a Prestwick Spaceport closer. With a huge boost that could give to the UK aerospace industry, will the UK Government join the Scottish Government in supporting an Ayrshire growth deal to literally get this off the ground? I can certainly assure the Honourable Lady that the Government is looking very keenly at the opportunities to Scotland and indeed the whole of the United Kingdom arising from the potential future development of commercial space operations. The Ayrshire project that she has described I'm sure will be uh, examined very closely by those of my ministerial colleagues who are particularly concerned with this area of policy, but we definitely want to see the UK as a pioneer in seizing these new commercial opportunities. Sir Peter Bottomley. Perhaps thinking of rail passengers trying to get to their jobs, the General Secretary of the TUC spoke about shafted and abandoned workers, while the Unite Union's Len McCluskey is doing a UKIP dance move, resigning before trying to return. Will my right friend encourage union and other political leaders to tell the RMT that 250 people with guaranteed employment should not bring the lives, the jobs and the safety of 600,000 Southern Rail passengers at risk? Um, Mr Speaker, I'm sure that my honourable friend will be speaking on behalf of many thousands of rail passengers in his constituency and many others in the south of England. And it's deeply disappointing that some unions are threatening to strike over the Christmas period. The Government is now investing record amounts in improving our railways, up to £40 billion over the next five years, and we need everyone in industry, both management and unions, to work together to secure the best deal for passengers. I have to say that the RMT's action shows coordinated contempt for the travelling public, and it seems designed to do nothing except bring about the maximum damage to people's lives. Mr Speaker, there is some heckling from the benches opposite. This, this party, Mr Speaker, is on the side of rail passengers, yeah. and I hope, I hope that the party opposite will join me in saying to the rail union leaders, sort it out, put the travelling public first, stop the squabbling and tell your members to get back to work. Mr Speaker, I'm sure the whole House will want to join with me today in commemorating the 75th anniversary of the Pearl Harbor attack, where thousands of American service personnel and civilians died. The next day, Winston Churchill summoned Parliament to debate the British response, and when he did, he said this, it is indispensable to our system of government that Parliament should play its full part in all important acts of the state. 
These words are a vital reminder that even at a time of crisis, in fact, especially at a time of national crisis, the role of Parliament is central. And in that same spirit, we welcome the Government's decision to accept our motion today that they will, they will show Parliament their plan for Brexit before Article 50 is triggered. So can I ask the Leader of the House one central question about this plan? Does the Government want the UK to remain part of the Customs Union? Mr Speaker, can I, can I first of all join the Honourable Lady opposite in marking the anniversary of Pearl Harbour, in remembering all of those who lost their lives at that time, but also um, marking with a sense of some sort of celebration even the fact that Prime Minister Abe is joining President Obama in going to Pearl Harbor, the first Japanese Prime Minister so to do. And I think that sign of reconciliation, uh, putting ancient uh, conflicts behind, is, is a welcome one. To the latest point about Europe, the government has always made it clear that we would seek to give additional clarity about our position uh, at the earliest opportunity. But it's been the case, as my right honourable friend, the Prime Minister, has said many times, that one of our core objectives is going to be to secure the maximum freedom for British companies both to have access to and operate within the single European market. I thank the Leader of the House for that answer, but I would respectfully say to him that surely on this issue the answer should be straightforward. We all know that it would be a disaster for British business if we do not remain part of the customs union. As the Leader of the House himself said in February, Everything we take for granted, trade without customs checks or paperwork at national, national frontiers, would all be up in the air. It is massive what is at risk. Now, on this side of the House, we would agree with him. We couldn't agree with him more. So can he put it beyond doubt right now, today, tell us, does the government want the UK to stay in the customs union? I mean, the, the Honourable Lady and I... She's right, Mr. Speaker. The Honourable Lady and I both argued passionately for the Remain cause during the referendum. What separates us now is that I am part of a Conservative government which is working together to respect the democratic verdict of the British people and to secure the best possible outcome for the prosperity and security of the entire United Kingdom from those negotiations. Whereas the Honourable Lady even just two months ago, was telling us that she wanted to go back to the British people in some way. She needs to decide whether she accepts the democratic verdict or not. Emily Thornbury! Of course we accept the democratic decision of the British public. Of course we do. But the difference between our side of the House and that side is that we want to leave the European Union on behalf of 100%, on behalf of the whole of this nation. Now, we really need to have a straightforward answer to a straightforward question, because leaving the customs union would mean having to check every container coming in at Dover, it would mean UK firms having to approve or, or their origin tests, and whatever they, whenever they export to Europe, it would mean chaos and it would mean gridlock for cross-border supply chains and as the Leader of the House said himself in May about lamb and beef exports, I believe, they go tariff-free. 
They go without any extra checks. You cannot, cannot guarantee any of that if we are outside. Now, again, on this side, we agree with what he said six months ago. The question is, does he still agree with himself? I mean, it, uh, I, I thought it um, hadn't escaped even the Honourable Lady's attention that there had been a rather significant referendum since February. Uh, and the, that changes the context in which we are now having to operate. We face, yes, a deep, very challenging, very wide-ranging negotiation. And it would be harmful to the national interest for me or other ministers to engage in the sort of detailed exposition of our negotiating position that she is now pressing upon me. None of the other 27 governments is doing that, nor should we. Dear, oh dear, we're not asking for details. About a central plank of the negotiations. If he cannot give us an answer on the customs union as a whole. Order, order. Both the questions and the answers will be heard. So if the juvenile behaviour can stop, that would be really helpful to the scrutiny process. Emily Thornbury. So we don't get an answer on the whole of a customs union. So can I ask him a question about one specific point? Since 1993, there have been no customs checks on the land border between Northern Ireland and the Irish Republic. And in May, when visiting Northern Ireland, the Right Honourable Gentleman said, if the UK was not part of the customs union, then there would have to be checks, custom checks at the border. And he said that for anyone to pretend otherwise would be, and I quote, flying in the face of reality. So... Can he confirm that this remains the position, and if that is right, he really must today make it clear that this is something that the government is determined to avoid? Well, the, the Prime Minister and the Northern Ireland Secretary have repeatedly made it clear that we, as indeed does the Irish government, want to see the very long-standing common travel arrangements and the free trade arrangements across the Irish border continue. We are actively engaged in talking both to the Northern Ireland executive and to the government of the Republic of Ireland about those matters. There is goodwill on all those sides to try and reach a solution that works for the people north and south of the border. The Leader of the House has made the familiar arguments that he can't give answers, that it's all to be resolved through negotiations. Brexit means Brexit. Brexit means breakfast. But that is not what the Secretary of State for Brexit himself said when he was asked about the customs union in September, because he said, and I quote, we have looked at this matter carefully, and that is exactly the sort of decision that we will resolve before we trigger Article 50. So... If the government is going to decide the position on the is- this issue before March the 31st, can the Leader of the House confirm that the British people and the British Parliament will be told some answers to my questions before they tell the rest of Europe? Uh, Mr. Mr Speaker, if the answers sound familiar, it may be because we need some constant repetition before the Honourable Lady will understand and appreciate the um, The... Uh, The government is at the moment engaged in a consultation with more than 50 sectors of United Kingdom business to ascertain precisely which aspects of European Union membership 
work well for them, which they see as harmful, where the opportunities beyond EU membership lie. We will come to a decision and we will go into negotiations on behalf of the full 100% of the United Kingdom population and all four nations of the United Kingdom. The fact is, and he knows it, we all know it, that he can consult as much as he likes, but the answer will come back. We should be part of the customs union. It is hugely disappointing that on a day when the government is committing to greater transparency on its intentions for Brexit, we're getting the usual stonewalling. We have a government that's promising to tell us the plan while refusing to give us answers to the most basic of questions. We have a government promising to give Parliament a say when they're spending we don't know how much of taxpayers' money across the road in the Supreme Court trying to stop Parliament having a say on this. In short, we have a government that cannot tell us the plan because they do not have a plan. They do not have a plan. In February, in February the Leader of the House said when he was hearing about the, the, what he was hearing about from the Leave campaign was confusing, contradictory nonsense. My final question is this. Are we hearing... Are we hearing anything different from this government today? Mr Speaker, we will publish, before Article 50 is triggered, a statement about our negotiating strategy and objectives, as the Prime Minister has said yesterday. But the, the Honourable Lady seems again to be in a state of utter denial about the consequences that flow from the referendum decision. No other EU government is seeking to reverse or question the legitimacy of that vote in the way that she and a number of her uh, colleagues are still trying to do. But I'm afraid that just indicates how distant the Labour Party now is from any aspiration to be back in government again. They are, we watch them in action. It's like um, it's quarrelling like mutiny on the bounty as reshot by the carry-on team. They are orders oh, first of all choice. I want to hear the words flowing. There's, there's no reason why the chair should be denied the hearing of these matters. It's very important, the leader. They are rudderless. They are drifting on Europe as on so many other aspects of policy. It's little wonder that so many decent working people who for generations looked to Labour to be their champion have given up in despair and are turning to this party as the authentic voice of working families. Mr Speaker, in 1943, a 16-year-old girl was forcibly taken to Auschwitz-Birkenau, where she witnessed the horrors of the death camps. On liberation, she came to this country with her mother, where she raised a family and became a nurse. She dedicated her life to the, uh, making sure that the people of this country and beyond know the horrors of the Holocaust. Last week, that lady turned 90. And Kitty Hart Moxon is with us today at Prime Minister's Question Time. Will my right honourable friend.
Will my right hon. Friend join with me, and I think the whole House, in wishing Kitty a very happy, belated birthday and thanking her for her lifetime of dedication to raising this important issue and also pay tribute to the Holocaust Educational Trust, who do everything possible, who do everything possible so that we all remember and witness the horrors of the worst part of the 20th century. I'm, I'm, first of all, Mr Speaker, I'm, I'm grateful to my honourable friend for raising this important issue and I'd like to join him in marking the achievements of Kitty Hart Moxon and of the Holocaust Educational Trust. I mean, I can never forget the impact of discovering as a schoolboy that two of the boys in my class had fathers who had survived Auschwitz. It is only a couple of generations ago that Europe was plunged into this unspeakable horror and it is important that not just the Educational Trust but all of us play our part to ensure that the memory of the Holocaust lives on and that the wider lessons of that dark period in our history are learned. And I think I would be grateful to all members right across the House and all political parties for their support in working together to ensure this vital work continues. Angus Robertson. Some of the most deprived communities in the country are in Glasgow. And today we learn, apparently, that the government plans to close job centres in those very communities. In Parkhead, in Bridgeton, in Easterhouse, in Castle Milk, in Langside, in Annesland, in Cambersline and Mary Hill. Is it true that the government is planning to close these important offices and add misery to the many tens of thousands of people in Glasgow who currently use these centres? Well, clearly the Department for Work and Pensions, like every government department, does look from time to time at its estates, at the, the number of offices that it has. But the, the Honourable, right hon. Gentleman makes a perfectly reasonable point on behalf of uh, people in Glasgow. I will ask my right hon. Friend, the, Welfare and Pension, the Work and Pensions Secretary, to uh, contact him with the details that he's seeking. Robertson. I'm, I'm sorry, Mr Speaker, that's not good enough. Yeah, 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 yeah. The Department... Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm sorry, being heckled, being heckled when dealing with communities that are so deprived does not behold Tory members well in Scotland. The Leader of the House is correct to say the Leader of the House is correct to say that the Department of Work and Pension has plans to cut the estate by 20%. What the DWP is planning to do to Glasgow is to cut it by 50%. Why is this government planning to disproportionately cut vital job centres in some of the most deprived communities in our country? Why? The the key uh, element in any such decision that a government department has to make is not the raw number of offices that there should be, but about how accessible the offices and the services which they provide continue to be to the people who need to use them. And I am absolutely confident that it is that criterion that is at the heart of my right honourable friend's thinking in planning for the future of offices in Scotland and everywhere else in the United Kingdom. Thank you, Mr Speaker. 
Passengers of the Chase Line face chaos and utter misery in the autumn, and this year it's been worse than ever. Delayed, cancelled and overcrowded trains leave passengers stranded at stations and being late for work and school. Will my right honourable friend outline what measures the government is taking to penalise poor performing train operators? I mean, first of all, can I express my sympathy to my honourable friend and her constituents and all passengers who've come across these problems on the chase line. I mean, it's clearly unacceptable and it's important that the operator works hard to secure a rapid and sustained improvement. The government has introduced new rules to ensure that uh, rail passengers will soon be able to claim compensation if their train is more than 15 minutes late. But as the Transport Secretary said yesterday, more needs to be done and we want to see much closer working right across the railway industry so that this kind of problem can be resolved much more, swi- much more swiftly than in the past. Deirdre Brock. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Does the Leader of the House agree with the Honourable Member for North East Somerset that Brexit offers an opportunity to remove pesky emission standards? In the red, white and blue of Brexit, will his government still commit to continued tough targets to protect our environment, or will tackling global warming just become a a load of hot air? The the government remains utterly committed to both national and global uh, ambitions and targets when it comes to climate change. Indeed, my right honourable friend, the current Home Secretary, in her previous job, played a key role in brokering the Paris Agreement last year, the first ever global agreement on climate change. Um, The Honourable Lady, I hope, would welcome the fact that we are now going to be ahead of our targets and ambitions in delivering on the proportion of electricity provided by renewables in this country and on continuing to work to get our uh, carbon emissions down. Thank you, Mr Speaker. There has been much talk recently about paying for access to a tariff-free single market. I think that's a very good idea. Given that the United Kingdom is the fifth biggest economy in the world, and we have a £70 billion trade deficit with the EU, would the excellent acting Prime Minister (laughs) tell the House how much the European Union should pay for tariff-free access to the United Kingdom single market. Well, I, I, and I suppose I should say, I should say uh, a thank you to my uh, honourable friend for the for the upgrade. Although I, I, I hope that doesn't turn out to be a career-limiting compliment. Um, but the, uh, I should say, I mean, he, he makes a good point in that a, a a settlement at the end of our negotiation which maintains maximum access to and freedom to operate within the European market for UK companies elsewhere in Europe and European companies here is in our mutual interest and I hope that will inspire negotiators on both sides. Patrick Brady. Thank you. Mr Speaker, how does closing Mary Hill Job Centre in my constituency, one of the most deprived parts of the country, help my constituency want to find a job? Does he accept that travelling further to other centres will mean increased costs for people already on the lowest incomes and an increased risk of sanctions? Why does this government continue to target the poorest and most vulnerable in our society? The 
If the government has been targeting the poorest and most vulnerable, it is in getting them back to work in record numbers, and it has been and it has been in providing a boost to the pay of uh, people on low pay through the introduction and the increase in the national living wage. I wish that the Honourable Gentleman were prepared to welcome and celebrate those achievements. Randy Bridgen! Thank you, Mr Speaker. As we're about to commence the most important negotiation for decades, does my right honourable friend agree that the government being forced to disclose its negotiation strategy at this stage yeah. is, rather like, is rather like showing your hand at cards to your opponent before a game of poker. And can I urge you to take no advice from the party opposite? They only have one card to play on this, and it's always the joker. Yeah. <laughs> um, Mr Speaker, I mean, we've always said we come forward with some more details about our strategic aims going into the negotiation, but it would harm our national interest if we were to go into the kind of detailed explanation of our negotiating position that the opposition urges upon us. That is not how any of the other 27 governments are either acting or thinking, and we should learn from that example. Dobbs! Speaker, um, does the Leader of the House agree that uh, tonight's vote on the Prime Minister's <laughs> amendment, uh, which we fully support, is a vote of the highest significance and great importance because for the first time, honourable and right honourable members of this House will have the opportunity to vote on whether they respect the will of the people of the United Kingdom and whether they will get on in implementing it. But people will be able to read and answer tomorrow who stands by respecting the will of the people of the United Kingdom. And would he also agree that the more... And I'm sure, he, and I'm sure that he will. The more red, white and blue he makes it, the better for us on the Unionist benches. The, um, the, the right honourable gentleman, uh, as so often, makes a very powerful and important point. The vote tonight will be the first opportunity for members of this House to decide whether or not they support the government's timetable of triggering Article 50 by the end of March 2017. And any right honourable honourable member who votes against that motion will, in my view, be seeking to thwart the outcome of the referendum in the most profoundly undemocratic fashion. Mr Speaker, this country's nuclear deterrent is our ultimate defence and it must be maintained at all costs. Yet hundreds of my constituents who work at the atomic weapons establishment are currently on strike or work to rule in a dispute over pensions. These are people who more often than not have devoted their entire working lives to tending our nuclear defence and to whom promises were made during privatisation. Can I ask that the Leader of the House commits to sit down with the Prime Minister and review this situation to ensure that those promises are being kept. Well, I'll, I'll certainly ensure that my right hon. Prime Minister is uh, informed about this matter, and my hon. Friend is absolutely right to raise these concerns on behalf of his constituents. My understanding, Mr Speaker, is that the proposed changes to the Atomic Weapons Establishment Pension Scheme are a matter for the company as the employer, but I can assure my hon. Friend that my right hon. Friend, the Defence Secretary, has been in close contact with AWE throughout the process and has also met the trade unions and he is now carefully considering recent developments to see what else might be done. Anna Turley. Thank you, Mr Speaker. I know the whole House will join me in sending their heartfelt sympathies and condolences to the family of David Brown from Eston, who, aged just 18, took his own life 
The, interest into his, the inquest into his death has heard that he did so on the day he was due to sign on at the job centre after saying that he felt belittled by staff despite actively looking for work and seeking an apprenticeship. Shortly before taking his own life, he told his mum, the way the job centre treat people, it's no surprise people commit suicide. Will the Leader of the House undertake a review into this individual case, but will he also undertake to stop take stock of six years of brutal welfare reform and look at the way the DWP treats its most vulnerable constituents, particularly young people. Um, Mr Speaker, can I, can I first also express unreserved sympathy for the family of David Brown? I mean, no parent, no family should have to go through that kind of uh, shocking experience. Um, now, clearly, um, human beings in any organisation uh, sometimes take decisions that uh, get things wrong and I will ask the Work and Pensions Department to have a look at the particular case that she has described. But I do have to say to her that I think the principle remains right that while staff should always behave with courtesy towards people seeking to claim benefits, it is also right that we should expect people who are receiving benefits to be subject to the kind of disciplines that apply to people in work even if they are on low pay. There is a principle of fairness here that is what lies behind the approach that DWP takes. Raymond Chishti. Thank you, Mr Speaker. I applaud the Prime Minister's vision for a government for all. As Chair of the All-Party Committee on Community Engagement, the FTSE 150 has less than 4% of individuals from an ethnic minority on its boards. Will the government support a vision to help increase that to 10% by 2021? I think it, it's very clear that, that boardrooms need to do more to reflect the reality of modern Britain, and the government certainly supports the principle of increasing the diversity of boards. That's why we're supporting the business-led ethnic diversity initiative that's chaired by Sir John Parker, and we very much encourage businesses to act on Sir John's recommendations. Tracy Brabin. Thank, thank you, Mr. Speaker. <clears throat> a recent FOI has shown that Pinderfields Hospital have placed ambulances destined for their A&E department on divert to Dewsbury Hospital in my constituency 61 times in the past 12 months. A hospital scheduled for downgrade next year. In light of evidence showing Pinderfields can't currently cope. Will the Leader of the House pledge urgent support from the Government to keep Dewsbury A&E open? Well, the NHS is certainly busier than it ever has been in its, in its history, which is why it still it should be a matter of thanks and tribute to hard-working NHS staff that 90% of people going to A&E are still being seen within the four-hour target. I mean, the point about the... Uh, configuration of local services in any part of the country is that these need to be driven by local clinicians through trust working together with uh, the CCGs who are the people who actually manage and understand what is needed in each locality. The local authority through its health uh, committee has the right to call in pro uh, proposed changes to services and refer them to the Secretary of State if they are uncomfortable with them. Ray Williams. Thank you, Mr. Yeah, Speaker. Yeah, 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 I know my right honourable friend will share with me the importance of the creative sector to our economy, and that, in conjunction with the Welsh language, makes S4C, S Pedra 
base currently in my constituency hugely important to the Welsh and British culture and economy. Will he, can my right honourable friend reaffirm this government's commitment to protect the S4C budget while we review the future of the Welsh language broadcaster? We are we're fully committed to the future of Welsh language broadcasting and to S4C, and I'm pleased to say the licence fee settlement that we've agreed has given financial certainty, protecting S4C's funding at more than £74 million a year for the next five years, and we're absolutely committed to ensure that the channel continues to make first-class shows and serve Welsh-speaking audiences in my honourable friend's constituency, and for that matter, right across the UK. Naz Shah. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Is the Leader of the House aware of reports of Rohingyan children being massacred and thrown into fires, of Rohingyan women being raped and houses erased to the ground? And what representations has this Government made to the Burmese authorities or the militaries in this regard? Yes, those, those reports from Rohingya are extremely concerning, as the Honourable Lady knows that there is a long history of uh, discrimination against the Rohingya people in Burma. Um, both British ministers and the British Embassy and officials in London make our concern very clear at regular intervals to the Burmese authorities. Steve Double. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Following the revelations in the BBC Panorama programme, Clinton House in my constituency is now closed. Three other care homes run by the Morley Group have now been rated as inadequate by the CQC and two others are currently under inspection. Concerns have been raised about these care homes for many years and it cannot be acceptable that it took the BBC to provoke the action that was desperately needed. Does the Leader of the House agree with me that it is now time to urgently review the role of the CQC to ensure that in future concerns raised by residents, families and staff are properly and promptly addressed? I, I think that older and vulnerable people deserve the highest quality care possible. There's no excuse for services that fall short of expectations in the way that my honourable friend has described. Now, the CQC does have extensive powers in law to ensure that nobody in the chain of responsibility is immune against legal accountability, and I would expect the CQC to exercise those powers in full in this case. But he has made some criticisms of the CQC and the government has been looking into ways to improve its processes and increase its efficiency and the, my, right honourable, my honourable friend, the Minister for Community Health and Care, discussed this very issue with the CQC earlier today. Brian Davis. US satellite data shows that 6% of methane from fracking is leaked through fugitive emissions. Given methane is 86 times worse than CO2 for global warming over that 20-year time frame, will he support the Council for U uh, Europe's call for banning of fracking, or at least, or at least the uh, minimum of 0 a maximum 0.1% fugitive emissions at the wellhead? No, uh, no, Mr. Speaker. The um, the Government took its decision uh, to give a go-ahead to fracking after extensive consideration of both the economic and the environmental risks and opportunities involved. We are confident that fracking can be carried out in a way that is safe, in a way that does not harm the environment, but which also provides job opportunities for this country and makes this country less dependent upon import of energy. Baker, Mr Speaker, I expect you. I expect my right honourable friend will be astonished, if not aghast, to learn that a succession of journalists from the BBC have contacted me seeking to create, to manufacture 
stories of backbench rebellion Shut on the up. issue of the EU. Never happened. Will, will he? All right, I want to hear about these activities. Order. Mr. Baker, will, will he agree with me that on these controversial issues the BBC should stick to its charter obligations on accuracy and impartiality instead of seeking to create problems for the government? Well, um, Mr. Speaker, I'm, I'm sure that my I'm sure that my honourable friend is shocked. I mean, shocked at the, the thought anybody could look to him as a source of information about rebellions against the government. I hope he'll be able to find some comfort in the fact that the new Royal Chartered Agreement require the BBC to deliver impartial news the very first time impartiality has been in, enshrined in the BBC's yeah. mission. Carolyn Harris. Having now received a response from the Prime Minister in my request for a children's funeral fund, I was disturbed to be told that the social fund can provide, and I quote, a simple and respectful funeral. The answer is both insensitive and totally lacks any understanding of my original request. Has the Leader of the House the authority to facilitate a meeting between myself, other bereaved mothers, so that we can explain to the Prime Minister exactly what it is that we are asking for. This request is important to us as parents, many in this House, and from my post bag, very, very many people and organisations throughout this country. I mean, burying a child is, I must be, an incredibly painful experience for any family, and I think all of us would want to pay respect to and have enormous sympathy with the Honourable Member for Swansea East and she speaks on behalf of, she says, thousands of parents who have to go through that that anguish. Now, as the Prime Minister said, there are mechanisms in place for financial support from central government to be available and local authorities are, of course, free and many of them do waive funeral fees for child burials. I will uh, talk to my ministerial colleagues about the Honourable Lady's request for a meeting and I'm sure she will receive a response to that. Mr Richard Graham. Mr Speaker, good train links are vital for our constituents to get to work and so it's incredibly frustrating for my constituents that Cross Country operates 63 services a day between Birmingham and Bristol but only three stop on the way at the City of Gloucester. So would my right honourable friend therefore ensure that ministers in extending the train operators franchise do not allow cross country to go on treating Gloucester like a leper to be avoided at all cost and oblige them to deliver a service that every city deserves? Well, I, th- I, I say to my honourable friend that um, he is, as always, speaking up strongly on behalf of his constituents. Any of us who've been to Gloucester knows that it's a place that you want to be able to visit uh, frequently and easily. Um, the government is investing record amounts in improving our railways, and as regards his particular case, the transport ministers are working with Cross Country and Great Western to see how the Gloucester service can be improved. Yeah. 